Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha, this is Emily Thoreau's Threat with the Grief and Happiness Podcast, and I am happy to have as my guest today, Emma G. Rose, and she's kind of special to me because she's a writer, just like I am. She doesn't write the same kind of things that I do, but I think writers kind of have a, a vibe that we can communicate together really well. So, Emma, would you like to tell us a little bit about you? My name is Emma G. Rose. I am the author of three fantasy novels, the owner, founder of Imperative Press Books Publishing House, and the host of the Indie Book Talk podcast. Wow, that's fabulous. You've got all the the bases covered with writing and publishing. And I know that you were inspired to write by a very sad occurrence in your lifetime. And that that kind of, I think, led you forward to do all this. So can you tell us about that? Yes, I have wanted to be a writer for my entire life. I always thought that that was something I would do. But like a lot of people, I was anxious about actually doing it and about getting published. And I just hadn't found the story that I desperately needed to tell. So the year that I turned 20, my cousin Nicholas died by suicide. And suddenly I found myself with a story that needed telling mostly because I needed to find a way to process the feelings that I had. And because I'm a great reader of fiction, I started writing fiction. So I sort of fictionalized all of my, my feelings and all of the ugliness of grief into something that was a little less scary. So it's a little bit funny and kind of looks at the strangeness and absurdity of this experience of suddenly losing someone. So I started writing this, the novel, um, fully intending to just do it for me to just sort of write down what I needed to write down. But the deeper into it, I got, the more I realized that this was something that maybe needed to be shared with other people. And so that started me on this journey of publishing three books in three years and starting the publishing house and everything I've done, I can say I wouldn't have done if I hadn't had that experience. Wow. I have seen such a rise in death by suicide lately, especially during the pandemic. It's amazing how that's happened in in, in younger and younger people with not being able to know exactly how to function with the shutdown and with the lack of emotional support by being isolated. It just unfortunately seems to happen so much. And I did notice that you said death by suicide. And I've, as so many people say, committed suicide. And I think it tells kind of a false story. What do you think about that? Well, I come from a journalism background, so um, I've actually, even before this was my personal life experience, uh, it was something that I had 
thought about how how we talk about these things and how we write about these things. And so one of the things that that does bother me and I do I sort of cringe a little bit when I hear someone say committed suicide. Because when you commit something, you commit a crime, right? And the history of suicide is that it was a crime and that people who took that action um, were punished beyond the grave, essentially. They're, they were buried in different places. The, their families were often stripped of inheritance. I mean, it was it was a huge thing and it was a crime. So I feel like when we say someone committed suicide, we're calling back to that earlier time and we didn't have the same level of understanding of what instigates that action and how complex the choice really is. I know that there are people out there who prefer that term for various reasons, and I'm not going to necessarily, you know, say anybody's right or wrong. But for me, for my family, the word committed just feels wrong. But we have always used the word suicide. And that 10 years ago, well, really 13 years ago now when my cousin died, uh, was not normal. And people were uncomfortable with that word. My uncle, from the very beginning, became an advocate for mental health, became an advocate for suicide prevention, and he started a a scholarship for my cousin's school. And he went to talk at the, the day, you know, when they give out all the scholarships and it's a big school event. And right before he went on stage, the school said, oh, or the principal of the school said, don't mention the word suicide. And to their credit, this was 13 years ago and things have changed drastically. It's now an open conversation, partially because of the work my uncle has done. But if we can't talk about things, if we can't find language to talk about these things, then we can't grieve properly. If we have to hide that my cousin died by suicide and pretend that something else happened, that means I can't talk about it. That means I can't write about it. That means other people can't come forward and say that happened to me, which I have to tell you, writing books like this, the number of people who come forward and say something like this happened in my family. Sometimes it's suicide. Sometimes it's another loss. I write about young people losing their lives often. So um, the characters in my first book die in a car accident and they're only 17. I've had people come up to me and say, we lost someone. Or more interestingly, sometimes have people say, I know someone who lost someone and I didn't realize how they were feeling until I read it in this piece of fiction. And for me, that's the work I'm doing, right? That's, that's the goal is to start these conversations to, to have people feel comfortable enough in the fictional world to explore something that's scary and emotional and difficult because that's what makes it safe is that fictional space where you can say, ah, oh, this isn't real, but it is. What a wonderful explanation of of what you're doing. It's valuable and needed in society today. I like the concept of the fictionalizing being kind of a a safe space for people so that they can then start to think about it themselves. It's a hard thing to start to think about, which sounds like kind of a strange statement, I know, but it's like if, if we think about it, then we admit it happened and it's real and the yes. people are doing that. And the more openly we can talk about things like this, it has the potential of preventing other people from being in the situation where to them, that's the only way to deal with what's going on. 
Well, and there used to be a belief in, again, in journalism, there was a belief that talking about suicide caused suicide. Mm. That was a firmly held belief for a period of time in journalism. What we discovered through researching how suicides were covered is that talking about suicide does not cause it. Glamorizing causes it. Just like glamorizing anything, and I don't even, the word cause isn't even right. Glamorizing can contribute to. If we have intentional, honest conversations about the feelings that lead to suicide, about the mental health conditions that lead to suicide, about the series of events and choices that can lead you there, we can protect people. If we glamorize, you know, people look at things that that seem glamorous, that seem like something to, to try for. So I'm very careful in my fiction I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of research. I'm very careful to keep the focus firmly on the result of the act, on sometimes the decision-making that could lead someone there, but to not make it into a a grand declaration of, oh, this person did this thing. And now, you know, look at how sad everyone is and look at how, look at how, oh, that, that showed them how this all, you know, how mean they were to this person. And that was some sort of vengeance or as though like everyone's going to wake up one day and say, oh, I should have been nicer or I should have been better. We do have those feelings, but almost no one in in talking to people who actually attempted suicide or who, you know, came very close to, to making that final step. They're not usually doing it to like get back at somebody or to show somebody how it is. They're really just pained. They're, the pain is so great that they don't know what else to do. And if we can recognize that that's the problem, that that isolation, that the idea that nobody understands what I'm feeling or nobody wants to understand what I'm feeling, if we understand that that's the instigator, we can remove that. So if I'm talking openly about my cousin who died by suicide and you have suicidal feelings, you recognize that someone else has been there. You can see the effect in my family. I mean, we have grown and we have become closer. There are are good things that have happened because we've chosen to make good things out of it. But I would give up everything I've done up to this point to have my cousin back. I would, you know, I would burn every book I've ever written to have my cousin back. So when you can see that reflected back at you, the decision becomes, do I ask for help? Do I tell people that I'm feeling this way? When we make that possible, we make life possible for people. But if we refuse to talk about it, or if we only talk about it as some sort of crime or as some sort of bad thing that someone does, as though it were like, oh, they stole the cookie, so we're going to slap them. Like, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. We have to come at this from a, a point of view of this person is grieving in their life. They're grieving who they thought they would be. They're grieving who... They think you want them to be. They're they're grieving not living up to whatever perceived potential they have. They're grieving not being, quote, normal, which isn't real. But we all have this urge to be normal, even though it doesn't exist. And so this is just an opportunity for conversations. I feel like I've gone way off on a tangent, but I get really passionate about this. <laughs> oh, it's, it's so important that people would talk about it openly like this. I really think there'd be fewer suicides. Because maybe people could reach out and find the support that they are craving, that that they really need. 
Yes. And it starts, though, earlier than that. And that's the thing I think that we as a family have come to over time, um, but that I hope that society comes to is that you don't prevent suicide by preventing the act of suicide. I mean, you can, yes, in the short term. But in the long term, if you want to decrease suicides, you decrease feelings of isolation. You decrease that sense of out, being an outsider. You decrease that stigma of having a mental health condition. As we take those things away, we, we get to the root of the problem rather than just addressing the symptom, which is suicide. The root is the mental health issue or that feeling of not being part of a community. So if we want to prevent suicides, we have to be conscious every day of how am I building community? How am I supporting the people around me? How am I asking for help when I need it to model that behavior to the people I love so they know they can do that in return? That's how we do it. Oh, wow. I'm really appreciating what you're saying. I'm glad that this is going to get out there for people to be able to, to hear and think about. Is it something that people think if they don't think about it, it's not going to affect them or it won't come to them. Right. How did your family uh, deal with you writing about it since it was inspired by something close to home? My family was immediately and incredibly supportive and have continued to be so throughout my career. I did give an early draft to my uncle because I wanted, my, my cousin is a character in the story. He's not the main character, but he is in the story. And that first novel, uh, Nothing's Ever Lost, is the story of two teenagers who die in a car accident and go on an adventure through the afterlife. So they meet my cousin or a, a fictionalized version of him in the afterlife. Knowing that, I knew I needed to show my uncle this book. This, this couldn't be a surprise mm -hmm. because that would that's a line too far. But I showed it to him and he really was immediately supportive as the rest of my family started to read the book, they said, this made me feel better. Mm. Reading this gave me some feeling of he's okay, a construct to think about what happened and, and what might have happened after uh, that I think a lot of people are also missing in a world where not everyone has a religion or a sense of what the afterlife looks like. You know, this is a purely fictionalized adventures through the afterlife that could fit with almost anything you already believe. So it gives people a space to think about something that again, is hard to think about. And for my family, it was cathartic and it was, it was comforting. My perception as I talk to other people outside the family is that they have similar feelings about it, even though it's not their person they can sort of project that idea of, oh, here's a place my person can continue to be where I can feel like they're safe. Wow. It's a, I've got to read it now. It's not so, <laughs> it's so interesting. One thing that, that you said early on was uh, about humor. And yes. I, I notice in, in the work that I do, a lot of times people hear what I do and they go, oh, that's nice and walk the other way. <laughs> they, <laughs> they just don't want to deal with it because they, they feel that anything having to do with, with grief and, and dying is sad. And they, they don't want to be sad. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to admit that they might die someday. <laughs> They Which, will, in yeah. fact, die someday. <laughs> That's not how they look at it. 
I know my my mother-in-law used to say, uh, if I die, <laughs> you should just crack me up. <laughs> but I I wonder how how you're able to weave humor into talking about things like this. I I love putting the humor in because ultimately humor is what saves us, right? If if you can't laugh at something, if you take it so seriously that it can't be funny, then you're probably locking yourself down into not feeling the fullness of emotion. In most of my novels, the main characters are teenagers. Teenagers are naturally funny. They can't help it. The way they look at the world, the energy with which they approach the world is funny. And so a lot of the humor comes from the conversations between the characters. In Nothing's Ever Lost, Jack, one of the two main characters, tends to misunderstand words. He's one of those people that will use, you know, a $10 word when a $3 word would do. And so, but he doesn't always use them correctly. And so that leads to humor. They're very bored for parts of this journey because they're walking through a pretty consistent landscape There's not much to do or look at. They don't have cell phones. So they talk to each other and that leads to funny conversations. In some of the the other two books, Near Life Experience and Assembling Ella, there are more kind of paranormal characters. So death is personified. Dream is personified. And they're gods. They're, you know, deities. And they think about the world very differently than we do. And that's often funny because one of the, the things about grief is that we think about it in a very, and life and death, we think about it in some very prescribed terms. When you start to break out of those and to explore in different directions, there's a lot about it that's really funny. And there's a lot about being human that's funny. If you start to think about it outside of the the parameters that we have set for ourselves in the world of the normal people. I don't live in that world, so I, I don't know about normal, but Funny is everywhere if you're looking for it. And even in the worst, I mean, the worst week of my life was the week my cousin died. But by the end of that week, we were telling stories. Remember the time that Nikki, I'm not going to say anything that's going to incriminate him, but he was hilarious and he did some really funny things that were all loving and good natured and hilarious. And we were able to tell those stories and begin to smile and begin to laugh about them. That is as much a part of grief as remembering how he died and and taking on the mission of doing something about that for other people. Telling his stories, acknowledging that he was a funny kid, that he was loving and kind and was always thinking about how can, you know, how can I be there for you? And he played sports. He was on teams. You know, he was enmeshed in his community. All of that's part of him and all of that's part of our grief. So when you remove humor, when you say, oh, we can't laugh at the funeral, what else are you supposed to do? I was thinking about growing up. I had a pretty big family. I only had one sister who was a lot older than I was, but my mom had, she was one of six. And so there were, and they all had lots of kids and they were all a lot older than I was because I came along later. But I went to lots of funerals as people were dying. And at the funerals, it seemed like that's when the tears came and people were sad. But we always had gatherings afterwards 
And we'd get into these conversations and we'd be cracking up and laughing till we cried because the things were so funny as we were sharing memories and and good times. And to me, it it seemed like kind of an essential part of the whole process to be able to laugh and cry. Yes. At the loss of someone that it's, it's not all sad. There's a lot of good in life too. And if, if we, stayed only in that sadness, we'd never make any progress in the world. Right, right. And that ability to feel the fullness of your emotions, to feel the sorrow and the loss and the, I can't believe this happened and the anger mm-hmm. at that person for taking that action and how dare you do that to us. All of that is part of it, but so is the laughter and so is the the joy at what has been accomplished since then. You know, my uncle was involved in getting suicide awareness training into schools in Massachusetts. That wouldn't have happened, you know? And so there are these good things and these beautiful things that can happen if you feel the fullness of the emotion. We are so afraid to feel bad things that we think there's something wrong with us when we have an emotion that we label as bad. And for a lot of people, grief is one of those feelings. For me, grief is part of my tapestry of emotions. Some days I feel grief. The week around, like right before the anniversary of my cousin's death, I am a wreck. I'm just like not fit to be out in society, but I go out anyway and I talk to people and I'm sad. And my friends and family recognize that. They know that. And it's okay. If we feel like we have to hide or, or turn away from the bad things, we can't feel the good things either. You don't get to choose which feelings you feel. You numb it all or you don't. And I, for one, prefer to feel it all, even if some of it isn't all that great. I, I agree with you. And that's, that's how you get perspective. And if you haven't known real lows, you will never have real highs because you don't know the difference. It's just all a a matter of perspective, I think. You are so wise. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I really enjoy talking to you. And I think this is a really valuable episode that people can uh, learn a lot from. And it's something that needs to be talked about that we, I was thinking of, of shunning that I remember somebody I knew whose, whose husband died by suicide. And she was essentially shunned by all of his friends. And I think it was mostly because they had no idea how to talk to her. Yeah. For, yeah, for lots of reasons. But that didn't help her. No, I think that, that that's huge too. When we Because I can talk about my grief in a way that is a matter of fact, this is part of who I am, then it can be a little more comfortable for people to ask me questions or to say, okay, so how do I talk to somebody who this happened to? And I will give you the answers right now for those who are listening. The answer is, do not be afraid to say the person's name. Please, we are dying for you to say their name. Because one of my favorite authors of all time, Terry Pratchett wrote, a man is not dead while his name is still spoken. Oh, I like that. Me too. And we all feel that. We all know that if you can talk about your person, they stay with you. And if you have to pretend they never existed, there's no pain worse than that. Because that feels like losing them all over again. 
So please say their name, recognize their birthday or their death day. And don't be afraid to say, how are you doing today? I'm thinking about you today. I realize this Christmas might be hard for you because you lost your whoever. Say those things. You're not going to make them sad. They're already sad. They already feel those feelings. You're not instigating those feelings. You're giving them an opportunity to talk about that person, to talk about how they're feeling, and ideally to prevent them from taking the same action. Because one of the things that is an indicator of suicide is if someone you know and love died by suicide, you are far more likely to do so. And that I think is exactly what you're talking about, that sense Mm -hmm. of isolation. Nobody understands what I'm feeling. Nobody knows how to talk to me. Nobody wants to talk to me about this thing that is the biggest thing in my life right now. If we can get past that, we can keep more people here doing the work that they need to do in the world because we need everybody. We're not here by accident. We need everybody to do something. The last thing is recognize that this is a long-term emotion. This is a long-term experience. My cousin died 13 years ago. Still hurts. I'm still getting teary talking to you. In Assembling Ella, the main character is 17. She lost her brother, who's one of the main characters in the first book. She lost her brother when she was six. Mm. Now she's 17. It's 11 years later. Everybody thinks, oh, that can't be what's bothering her. That's so long ago. It's the past. It's not the past for us. When you lose someone, they remain lost. They remain dead. And you stay here having to learn to live with that. That doesn't go away in a six-month mourning period or a one-week mourning period as we seem to have in this country now. It's a long-term experience. And people will value when you remember that their person existed and that you acknowledge that some things are hard for them because they lost someone. That's right. That's so important. When you were mentioning about what to say is to say their name, I often get the question of what do you say to somebody who's grieving? And my first thing that I always say is to say the name of Mm -hmm. the, the person because that person means so much to them. And to to have memories of that person is so much better than trying to deny the person ever existed by just pretending like, you know, he's not there anymore, so we don't have to talk about him. And I've been more comforted by somebody saying, oh, I remember when your mom did this, or I I remember when Ron did this. And that feels so good because it it brings smiles instead of tears in those situations. And it reminds you that you're not the only one who knows they existed. You're not living in this like parallel universe where they only existed for you. They existed and they touched the lives of, and they impacted all of these people. And it really helps to be reminded of that sometimes. Oh yeah. That's so, so important. Well, your message is so valuable. I love the creative way of, of dealing with it through fiction because I can just see how I've learned things, deep things through fiction, because you can talk about things there that people don't talk about when they're talking to each other. And, but it can lead to conversations once you've read about it. So I I commend you for what you're doing. I think it's just fabulous. And I'm so glad that you were able to be here and talk with us today. And do you have any last thing you want to say or 
the last thing I want to say is that you are not alone. Mm. Never have been, never will be. And if you feel like you are, reach out to absolutely anyone and keep reaching until someone reaches back. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm sure that this is going to create a lot of thinking in everybody who listens to this. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for you being here. Thank you so, for having me. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you very much. And to our listeners, I'm grateful to you too for being here today and to listening to this and spread the word, you know, say kind things about people who aren't here physically in person anymore, because you never know how much joy you're going to bring to someone. So thank you very much. And I'll see you next time. Do you want more comfort, support and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.